after uh, two lessons of introduction, we're ready to jump into the book, book of Revelation. I want to remind you as we do get into the book that um, if you miss anything, I'm trying to keep notes posted on the website in PDF form. The notes are better organized than I am. As we look at Revelation, remember last time we talked about the considerations we had to bear in mind as we jump into it, the contextual considerations of literary genre, literal context, historical context, biblical context, symbolic context, the hermeneutical considerations of interpretation. Um, There are different interpretive views that people come to the book of Revelation with and apply a different grid, a preterist view, which is a past view, historicist view, which is a present view, the idealistic view, which is a timeless or a symbolic view, the futurist view, which is a future view. And then the different views of the millennium, we talked about amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism. And the author, the date, just quickly, I'll remind you that I think, and most scholars totally agree on this, that the date was about 95 to 96 AD during the reign of Emperor Domitian. The structure of the writing is a hard outline, but basically you have a prologue, which we're in today, a body, and an epilogue. Everything else, that huge section called body from Revelation 1-9 to 22-9 is real hard to organize. And then the concept of the kingdom of God. We talked about the already but not yet tension, how we hold truths in tension between the already and the not yet fulfillments of the kingdom of God. So now, as we prepare to jump into the first verse of the book, I want to take you back in time and space to Asia Minor in the first century, um, right around 95 AD. Asia Minor was the intersection of the world. It's southwestern Turkey. The city of Turkey today, uh, Constantinople, uh, Istanbul, modern city, that's considered the bridge between Europe and Asia. That's where the continents meet. So literally, Turkey, southwestern Turkey in particular, was the intersection of the world in that day. Not just geographically, but politically and uh, religiously too. Um, These seven churches that we'll read about in chapters two and three, they're located in that region. And as this new faith, I put new in quotation marks because it's not really new, but the new faith called Christianity, which seemed new to everybody, uh, started growing from Jerusalem. And it grew toward Europe as it got to about Asia Minor through the propagation of the uh, missionary work of Paul. Paul developed most of these churches there. He founded most of them in the 60s, 60 AD. As they began to grow the the way, as it was called, Christianity or the way, as it was called, as it began to grow, it met up with a lot of different religions. The Roman Empire really kind of boasted in its religiosity. The Roman Empire was very religious, but I mean that in the way we boast about football. You know, like we have all these football teams and everybody's got their team 
and there's about that many religions too, you know, and that's the way it was in the Roman Empire. There were a multitude of religions. Everybody had their own brand, and it was their identity. In fact, Roman law made religion illegal in any country outside its origin. There was one exception to that, and that was Judaism. Judaism was allowed to be practiced in all the countries of the Roman Empire. Of course, the Roman law prohibited any problems or controversy due to your religion. So if there was any misbehavior, then it was quickly squelched. No widespread, in fact, well, let me say this, in spite of what liberals may say, there wasn't much widespread prosecution or persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire during the reign of Nero, which was earlier. Um, there was persecution, but it was primarily limited to around Rome. As you know, he blamed the burning of Rome on Christians, and so he persecuted them for that. But the emperor Domitian is in charge now. He came to power in 81 AD, and he began the first full-scale empire-wide persecutions of Christians. Domitian was an interesting fellow. His brother was dying of a disease, and he ordered him left for dead before he even died. His, one of his vestal virgins was supposedly caught in an affair, so he ordered her buried alive, and all of her supposed lovers were beaten to death with rods. He um, heard of somebody making jokes about him and had him put to death. He raped his niece, who was married, and when she became pregnant, forced her into an abortion and killed her and the child both. Not a nice guy. So just painting a picture of who he was, not only was he reprehensible morally and eth ethically, but he was not a pretty sight. In fact, I'll read you. He's described, and this is, quote, being sensitive about his baldness, I'm not going to make any comments, and as having a protruding belly and spindling legs. So y'all get the picture of the guy? We think our government's bad, and we think our leaders are bad. Do y'all feel better? Persecution was just beginning to get worse because Domitian was the kind of guy to make it so. Christianity is facing tough times, and as Dave prayed, they were looking for hope. They were looking for meaning and for purpose. How in the midst of suffering do you praise God? How do you praise God when it looks as if there is no hope, when it looks as if there's nothing to be thankful for? How do you focus on the future when you don't know what it is, when everything looks bleak? How can you trust in God's providence, God's sovereign control over all things when all you see is chaos? You know, as we'll study in Revelation, some of them were already being put to death. One named Antipas, namely. People were dying for their faith. When I say persecution, I don't mean like they talk about you at the water cooler. I'm talking about you lose everything. And it was tied not only to your well-being, but to your vocation. The uh, empire had uh, trade guilds, kind of like unions, and they were focused on emperor worship. It was called the imperial cult, and 
if you didn't express allegiance to the emperor, then you were denied business. You couldn't trade. You couldn't get a job. Everything was at stake if you named the name of Christ. So as that kind of persecution began to spread, Christians were faced with three choices. Basically the same three choices we have today. Number one, deny and recant your faith, which many of them did, as historians record. Of course, we know what? They went out from us because they were not of us. So they weren't believers to begin with. Number two, and, I, and, and let me say this. I know I said that flippantly. I've never had somebody put a gun to my head or my faith. So I don't say that boasting that I know I wouldn't deny my faith, but I pray that the God I serve would give me the grace in my own flesh. I don't have that courage. But I pray at the time I would have the courage. It's kind of like, you know, the story of the um, soldiers who broke into a secret church behind Iron Curtain with machine guns, lined everybody up against the wall and said, now, we're going to execute all of you who name the name of Christ. If anybody wants to recant and leave now, do so. Everybody left, and the few that remained were scared to death, knowing they were about to be shot. And they said, we just wanted to see who the real believers were. Let's have church. Put the guns down. So it's the same principle. Number two, so you deny or recant your faith. Number two is you compromise your faith. And you start blending the Roman culture, the emperor worship into Christianity and you justify that because of the impact if you don't and of course number three is to stand firm to um, name the name of Christ at whatever the cost to do exactly what he would have you do in every situation that's the environment and I know it might be a little bit of a lengthy introduction but I want to get you to have a feel for Remember, context is so important in interpreting any book, but especially Revelation. That's the context to which it was delivered. So let's jump into it. If you have a King James version of the Bible, you probably have as the very first wording in Revelation a title, and the title is The Revelation of St. John the Divine. That appeared in many later Greek manuscripts, the earlier ones, before Eusebius. None of them had that for obvious reasons. And as we'll see in a few moments as we get into the uh, other verses, I think John would have been horrified with a title that said the Revelation of St. John. Because this is not the Revelation of St. John as... I've got up here, it's the revelation of Christ. So today, trying to be very uh, optimistic and try to cover three verses. At the rate I'm going, I'm not going to make it. This is the revelation prologue, the introduction. And we're just going to go word by word through the book. First of all, the very first word, in the, and, and y'all remember, New Testament books were written in what? Greek. So the very first word in the manuscript was the very first Greek word. And the very first Greek word was the word apocalypsis. And we've talked about that before. We get the word uh, apocalyptic or apocalypse 
from it. And this noun form of apocalypse has been corrupted in its meaning. It's kind of like the word gay today. You know, I grew up when gay meant a good thing. It meant you were good-natured and happy. Um, well, that's the meaning of that word's been corrupted. Well, apocalypse has been corrupted because now every time you hear the word apocalyp apocalyptic or apocalypse, what do you think of? Zombies, yeah. <laughs> you think of terrible chaos, catastrophe, global destruction. That was never the case in the original. In the original, it simply meant unveiling, uncovering, uh, disclosing something that was previously hidden. Although there were apocalyptic literatures of the Jewish world from 200 B.C. to 100 A.D., and they had some things in common with it, that was not the original meaning. The very first word being apocalypse, I've just labeled this as referring to the style. And yes, I strained to come up with words that all start with an S. So this is the style of Revelation, or the essential nature of the book. All the way through the book, this is an unveiling, a revealing not just of end times. That's what we all focus on. In fact, the end times revelation is very secondary to the primary revelation, which is what? Jesus Christ. Because what's the next word? Because there's apocalypse, and then there are two words that follow, and it's Jesus Christ. And... The nouns, the proper nouns that follow for Jesus Christ are in what's called, and I know I'm not trying to be technical because I don't even understand what I'm about to tell you, but I'm just going to try to convey what it means. And that is, they're in the genitive form. And the genitive form implies a possession. Scholars have debated whether it's subjective genitive, genitive of source, or objective genitive. You say, well, what in the world does that mean? That means when it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's saying that the possessor, the possessiveness of the revelation relates to Jesus Christ. It's his revelation. So here's the three ways to look at what I just said. He is the subject of the revelation. He is the theme of the revelation. But in that genitive clause, it's either a subjective genitive, it's the revelation by Jesus Christ. The other, if it's uh, of source, then it's from Jesus Christ. And if it's objective, it's about Jesus Christ. Most scholars tend to lean toward the uh, one of source, that it's from him. Since all revelation... All of God's revelation from Genesis to Revelation, what is the story of all of his revelation? Jesus Christ. It's his story. It's an autobiography. You see, my point is, regardless of the grammar, in this case, isn't all three or aren't all three true? Isn't Jesus Christ the supplier of revelation, the source of the revelation, and the subject of the revelation? Because he is of all scripture. I just think that's an interesting point that here is 
the one subject in Scripture that could be the supplier, the source, and the subject, and that is Jesus Christ. It's interesting how that Jesus Christ as a formal, formal title is used three times in these first five verses, yet through the rest of the book, it's just his simple name, Jesus, 11 times. So it's like in the formal introduction, John is being sure that we get it, that this book is not about details. It's not about the ten toes of the vision of Daniel. It does address details. It does address events. It does address end times. But it's about Jesus Christ. And as I've said before, if we miss that, we've missed the point of the whole book. We've missed everything if we miss the glory of Christ revealed in the book of Revelation. It's not meant to be an enigma. It's not meant to be mysterious. It's meant to be clear, as we'll see in the next couple verses. It's meant to be a revelation that blesses us with the glory of Christ to be revealed. And so we cannot risk missing that. It's critical that we see it. Bear with me, let me read this quote from W.A. Criswell about Christ and his revelation of glory. For you see, the first time that a Lord came into the world, he came in the veil of our flesh. His deity was covered over with manhood. His humanity hid out of sight as Godhead. Just once in a while did it shine through as on the Mount of Transfiguration or when he did some unusually marvelous and divine work. But most of the time, the glory, the majesty, and the deity, the wonder and the marvel of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity was veiled. It was covered over with flesh. And eventually, to skip down, that led to him dying on a cross. But, is that all the world is ever to see of our Savior, dying in shame on a cross? No, it is a part of the plan of God that someday this unbelieving, blaspheming, and godless world shall see the Son of God in his true character, in glory, in majesty, in the full-orbed wonder and marvel of his Godhead. They shall look upon him as he is revealed, taking in his hands the title deed to the universe and holding in his hands the authority of all creation in the universe above us, in the universe around us, and the universe beneath us, holding this world and its destiny in his pierced and loving hands. This is what God has in covenant promise to do for our Lord. Because of his mediatorial office, because he humbled himself, because he poured out his life unto death, because he became flesh and blood and suffered for the sins of the world, God hath given him a great reward. That's what we see coming in the book of Revelation. He is the center of the book, the circumference of the book. He is the beginning and the end, the top and the bottom, the inside and out, over and under. He is it all. I can't overstate that. I don't want to ever be accused of this being an exercise in seeking trivia and everything in the scripture is important. I shouldn't use the word trivia. But if we miss the glory of Christ, we've missed the point. Next. Next phrase. Which God gave him. 
This is the source of the revelation. Now, do you find that strange that in the scriptures, the revelation would be referred to as a gift from God the Father to God the Son? Think about that. Doesn't that kind of strike you as strange? Why would God the Father give God the Son a gift of a revelation? Isn't the revelation for us? Well, a lot of people speculate on that, but I want to offer an explanation that I think hits the nail on the head. You remember in Philippians 2, the hymn to Christ, where God talks about Christ being exalted, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Doesn't that sound, or didn't what I read from W.A. Criswell sound similar to that? Like in other words, God the Father is going to highly exalt Christ because of what he's done. Because he did the will of the Father. And we see that progressively acknowledged through the revelation we have. Because what happened? God the Father expressed his pleasure with the Son at what first? His baptism? Then he expressed his pleasure with his atonement in the crucifixion, right? What was the token, what was the sign that God the Father took great pleasure in his crucifixion and death? His resurrection. His resurrection was the token, the sign, the um, icon that he had great pleasure in that. Then next was his ascension. That was a, a token of God's pleasure with the Son. Next, the ascension, then the sending of the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8 says. Now, as we close canon, the final gift that we see in this world of God the Father to God the Son as a token of his pleasure with him in his life, death, and work is what? The revelation. Because the revelation is what? A picture of that ultimate glory to come. It's where we get to see a glimpse, although in a mirror dimly, it is a glimpse of the glory to be revealed that all flesh will see together. And how much greater gift could God the Father give to the Son than to disclose it's like, um, it's like if some rich person was going to have some debutante party for their spoiled daughter and and wanted to disclose wanted to disclose how elaborate it was going to be and they published all the details of this great party you know like we're going to have um the beatles come and sing and stuff like that you know it's like painting a picture of how big a how big a gift this is going to be i know i see debbie laughing at me i know i'm making a fool of myself i need to stick to the script but um <laughs> But 
I'm trying to be sure y'all get the picture of what I just described. The, the point of us being saved is not primarily, I mean, Christ didn't come primarily, y'all please hear me, to save us. He came primarily to do the will of the Father. We get sucked up into this inner Trinitarian love feast because we become the bride of Christ. I think it's evident that it's within the rest of the revelation of Scripture that we could view this as a gift, a gift from the Father to the Son. But, but let's move on. Next phrase is to show his bondservants. This refers to the slaves of, of the revelation. The slaves, and I know um, it's radical to use that word, but the word here for bondservant is doulos. Um, and there are different words used for servant. Like the one, one word we use is deacon. We get the word deacon from. That's not the word used here. This is doulos, which means bondservant. And it refers to the custom in uh, Jewish culture where slaves were indentured for six years, and in the seventh year they were allowed to go free or in the year of Jubilee. But if a slave and a master had such a special relationship that the slave loved the master so, Exodus chapter 32, I'm sorry, chapter 21, Exodus 21, verse 5, explains how that slave could, do, could have another option. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and there he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. What's a bondservant? It's someone who has willingly devoted themselves to the master forever out of love and devotion, not out of obligation or force. Who are the recipients? Who are the human recipients of this revelation? The bondservants, the slaves of Jesus Christ. That is who we are. That's who we should be. So just as a kind of a pause here, why might be one reason the book of Revelation is so hard to understand? Why is it so controversial, particularly in culture at large, including unbelievers? Because they're not what? They're not his bondservants. Because what does 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says? Our natural men only appraise what? Natural things. Spiritual things are spiritually appraised. How do we even understand the gospel apart from the Spirit of God? We don't. How do we expect to understand the revelation apart from the Spirit of God? We can't. And yet, it's meant to be clear. It's meant to be understood. Like Jesus said in Matthew 13, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now that sounds harsh, but that's what he said. Next phrase. The soon of the revelation. The phrase, the things which must soon take place. This is the prophetic character of the revelation. Um, what's the the uh, nature of the timeline of this, soon. 
The root word for soon there is taco. I think it's pronounced taco. I really don't know how it's pronounced, but it's the Greek word T-A-C-H-O. Now, all you uh, gearheads, y'all know what word we get from that, right? Tachometer. A tachometer measures the velocity of something, like the velocity of an engine RPM. So it has a dual meaning in etymology. One is fast or quickly, like 10,000 RPMs. But another meaning is eminently or shortly, expressing the nearness and eminence of an event. That's what John is using it for here. He, although things do happen fast once we get into the wrath and the uh, timeline of Revelation, things happen fast. By far, the, throughout time, we see all the writers of Scripture viewing Christ's coming as being soon, imminent. They lived. Paul thought Christ was coming in his lifetime. John thought Christ was coming in his lifetime. How much closer are we to his coming almost 2,000 years away? So we all are commanded to live in an expectation of his imminent, like today. He could come today. All right, next phrase. The sending of the revelation. This is real interesting to me. How was it communicated? How was the revelation transmitted to John? It was sent and communicated by his angel. This is a very amazing, interesting aspect of the book of Revelation. It's the only book of the Bible that was transmitted through, through an angel. I just think that's very interesting. In fact, we see a sequence here of a chain of transmission where God the Father gives it to God the Son, and then Jesus gives it to an angel, and then an angel to John, and then John to Christ. I mean, John to the slaves, bondservants of Christ. Isn't that interesting? That there's this chain, the Father to the Son, the Son to an angel, Son to John, John to us. Why? It's like a very formal um, it shows the seriousness and the grand nature of the revelation. I'm sure Chuck could tell you that generals don't give orders to privates, right? It goes to a colonel, to a major, to a captain, to a lieutenant, to a sergeant, to a private. Chain of command. That's, and I think that's a beautiful picture of what we've got here. This shows the formality with which this grand book was delivered to us. And angels are talked about more in um, Revelation than any other book. 71 times in Revelation. Angels are mentioned in every chapter except 4 and 13. In fact, of all the mention of angels in the scriptures, one of every four is in the book of Revelation. So we are going to get into angelology. In fact, just quickly, just to whet your appetite, this is tradition, this is not scriptural, but the seven archangels, this could be an archangel who delivered the revelation, and a book called Enoch that supposedly was written by Enoch. You know, all revelation, all scripture is inspired and true. We know that. Every word, every jot and tittle. But that doesn't mean that extra-biblical writings are false. 
Some extra biblical writings contain truth. In fact, the book I'm talking about that we get the seven names from is quoted in Jude. In Jude, where it talks about that he come with his godly ones, that's a quotation, a direct quotation from this book, Enoch. So it could be that these, I mean, the first two we know are biblical. They're in the Bible, Michael and Gabriel. In fact, I saw a movie last night that had a Russian Orthodox church in it, and the name of the church was St. Uriel. They recognize as one of the archangels of God. Anyway, we'll talk about this more. We'll talk about the hierarchy, you know, the seraphim, the cherubim, the archangels, the angels. It's like what Chuck said, it's a chain of command. We're dealing with powers and principalities, both with elect angels and unelect angels, and I think it'll be very interesting. Trivia question, though, how many angels are named in the Bible? Two. That's a correct answer. There's also another correct answer. <laughs> four. There are four. Because there's what? The, 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 of the elect angels, there's two. Michael and Gabriel. Lucifer. Lucifer, Satan is a third one, which uh, the Roman, uh, I mean, a Jewish tradition originally had him named Satan L. You see, they all ended with L because they were of God. And then he became Satan, which means deceiver. At Lucifer, meaning the morning star. But there's one other who is named only in the book of Revelation in chapter 9, verse 11. And that's Abaddon, or Apollyon, who is the leader of the demons of the locust ford. Uh, uh, the locust, the horde. Yeah, what? I, I'm thinking of tachometers and fords, you know. But... Um, yeah, the locust horde. Thank you, Debbie. The, uh, that's, that's the name of that. So there's two demons or unelect angels and two elect angels. Anyway, we'll talk about that more. Um, I just think that's very interesting, but we don't need to get bogged down in trivia. Next phrase, to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. This is the scribe of the revelation the human author. We've already talked about this as Apostle John, brother of James, son of Zebedee, the young disciple of Jesus, perhaps the youngest disciple, and now we know he's the oldest disciple, the oldest apostle still living. Most people think he lived to be about 96 or so, dying around 100 AD. So he's either in his 80s or 90s at this time, depending on how old he was when uh, he was a disciple. And um, all the other apostles have been put to death, martyred for their faith. But he didn't escape persecution. Uh, in fact, again, Roman tradition, uh, Jewish tradition, which is church tradition now, has it that he was arrested in Ephesus, sent to Rome, uh, and prosecuted under the uh, authority of Domitian, and refused to recant was ordered to be executed in the Colosseum by being boiled alive in oil. So they put a, a pot of boiling oil in the Colosseum, put him in it, but miraculously, he was unaffected, unburned. And so, like Nebuchadnezzar did with the three young Hebrews, they let him go, 
but they ex exiled him to the island of Patmos. And uh, that's, of course, where he wrote the book of Revelation. But John, what I want to mention quickly is John is a testifier. John is a witness. The word here for witness, the word here for testimony and testifies is the same root word that Carlton mentioned last week we get the word martyr from. It's an eyewitness who is willing to die for his faith. An eyewitness. Just as Genesis is an actual historical record of what actually happened, although it's strongly attacked by liberals, the beginning of the book of the Bible, so the end is strongly attacked, and yet it is an eyewitness of actual events and people. You say, that's crazy because it's future. No, John was transported by vision to outside of time, to outside of Patmos, so that he actually saw what he's testifying to. And this ties into the way he wrote all of his books because... He, um, his gospel was focused on believing. His epistles were focused on being sure you're a believer. And now the revelation's focused on being ready. So you got life received, life revealed, life rewarded. Focusing on our salvation, sanctification, our sovereignty. Christ as prophet, priest, and king. The, there's uniform nature to the way John writes. He's always delivering an eyewitness testimony. In fact, how many times does he identify himself in the gospel? None. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's like here he uses his name like, I can't believe that I, John, was allowed to see this. It's really amazing. I want to wrap up with this. I want to be sure we cover this because this is rich to me. This is the blessing of verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. As I mentioned before, this is the only book of the Bible that promises a special blessing. Now, all Scripture is inspired and profitable for men of all times. So, all Scripture blesses us. But there is a special blessing for those who read and hear and heed or keep the book of Revelation. This portrays a typical first century worship service where the book, you know, they just had one copy of the scriptures if they had one of each book of the scriptures. And they were read aloud, and then those who heard it would believe it and keep it so that they might heed or obey the things written in it. This is the first of seven Beatitudes or blessings in the book of Revelation. But what I want to focus on is what does this mean? We say, well, it means you're blessed if you read and heed the book of Revelation. Well, I'm talking about specifically, what does that mean? How are you blessed? You get a new car? Or... How, how are you blessed if you read the book of Revelation? Aren't we blessed if we read any scripture? So my question is, how are we specifically blessed differently from reading the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible. Well, first of all, you can't be blessed. This is not a magical incantation. This is not mysticism. This is not 
uh, abracadabra. It's not just, oh, so you can be a rank unbeliever and read this and then you're blessed. It's based on what? The words. Blessed is he who reads the words, who hears the words, who heeds the words. So the power is in the word. Romans 1, the power of God is the gospel and all the word of God. The power is in the word. So the power for blessing is in the word and you can't be blessed by what you don't have. So if you've never received it, like Christ in the Great Commission did not say, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. He didn't say that. What did he say? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So you don't, we don't just teach the word. We don't just read the word. We don't just hear the word. We receive the word, observe the word, heed the word, take it to heart, obey the word. With that kind of thought in mind, what is blessing about this particular revelation? Blessing or blessed in the Greek can mean just simply happy. But in Hebrew, there were two words for blessed. One means to kneel or bow. The other means to obtain direction. Like in Proverbs, it says, and this is a word called ashar. It means, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Do you see the fine line of what blessing there means? Blessing that most scholars think was in the back of the mind of John when he used this word was blessing that comes from having a path when there seems to be none. Blessing that comes from having purpose when there seems to be none. Blessing that comes, like, what is the most torturous thing on life? We, we all go through suffering. We all go through trials. Like, we've had good friends lose a child. And in the midst of losing a child, what... And that's like the greatest tragedy you could have as a parent would be to lose a child. But what would be even worse than losing a child would be, lose, would be losing a child with seemingly no purpose, no hope. It's terrible to go through cancer. It's terrible to go through suffering. But what is worse than going through cancer and suffering except going through cancer and suffering with no purpose. There's no point. We just go through this and then die. You see where I'm going? These people were suffering. These people, their lives were on the line for their faith. And God is saying to the son, to the angel, to John, to us, blessed are you if you read and you hear and you heed, because this will give you the blessing of a path when there is none, of a purpose when all is chaos, of a point to life when everything is falling down. You know, the Roman Empire is going to consume Christianity, or try to. 
But they're only going to make it what? Stronger. The more persecution, the stronger it got. How can we be blessed as recipients of this word? We receive it. We read it. We hear it. We believe it. And we heed it. And we are blessed because we have a view of life that no one else can have. Because we see the end. It's like Dave prayed. We live in light of a vision and a goal that gives us victory. And like Romans 8 says, we're hooper Nakaho. We're super Nike. We're overcomers. And that's what we'll read about in the churches. They're all what? Overcomers. Blessed is he who overcomes. And that's a great point, Bruce, because Luke 2.32, where that's used, where Simeon says that, you know what word, and there's a law of first mention in the Bible about the first time a Greek word is used is a good indication of how it's meant to be used elsewhere. That's the first time a word is used in the New Testament, that word, when he says he is a revelation, a light unto the Gentiles. That word is apocalypse. So it's an unveiling of a person. It's a disclosure of God. Anyway, I know we're over time. We've got to go. But the last phrase is the uh, seriousness, the compelling urgency. And that's because he's coming. <laughs>